one of the identity markers of a colonialist is that they have no respect for boundaries. They love to talk about other people. They love to take a magnifying glass and look at other people's problems. It doesn't matter whether it's under the mask of BBC reporting or whether it's academics who are steeped in Indology, they have no respect for boundaries. And when there is a family dispute or a family difference, the first thing we're taught to do is to try and resolve it within the family. There are very few third parties who have no conflict of interest with us. So one of the things that we have to do is to create safe spaces and push people out who have a conflict of civilizational interest with us. They have no role to play in this conversation. Now they will keep trying to push themselves in. Um, and I will happily mention people like Audrey Trishka. People like Audrey are supposedly academics, but they will eternally find fault with us and fill the bandwidth. One, it doesn't give us the time to heal. And two, it doesn't give us time to actually have a look at their own houses. Our simple village rules about if it's a problem in the family, sit down and let's sort it out for everybody's advantage. I'm going to jump straight in with a little bit of an introduction. Um, caste is one of those subjects which is not particularly entertaining, it's not uh, enjoyable for the vast majority of us to even consider it and think about it has been an action which has been very, very uncomfortable. We have shied away from this subject. And this is not something that I ever thought I would have to write a book about. It's not something I was particularly concerned about or interested in until it descended upon us here in the United Kingdom. Um, we have now three or four generations in the United Kingdom of Hindus and a Bharatiya Dharmic community. And in that time period, we've developed uh, our own little ecosystem within which we all work. And being an immigrant population, we have learned to work with each other and to support each other as much as is possible. And in that experience pool of some, for myself, 50 years, we have not encountered this phenomenon called caste discrimination. So we have grown up with a dharmic understanding. We have grown up with an exposure to our shastra, our rituals, our paramparas, our sanskriti. And within that, we have almost like a Hindu, a mini Hindu community, isolated and a long way away from Bharat. One of the aspects of that has been actually very good because we have nurtured ourselves by reference to our rituals, to what our mothers taught us, to what our fathers taught us to what we learned from the uh, various Tiohar um, and the celebrations and the festivals. And caste never featured in that in this country at all. A strange occurrence happened in 2016. And that occurrence was that uh, an evangelical bishop who was in the House of Lords suddenly made a statement that British Hindus were subjecting each other to caste discrimination on a daily basis, and if you looked at the figures that he presented to Parliament, you would have calculated that 50% of the Hindus in Britain were discriminating and harming the other 50%. And this was completely against our lived experience. 
Now, at that time, I was doing seva with um, mandirs and with the Council of Hindu Temples. And so this was a shock to me. Obviously, we had not encountered it in our family. We'd not encountered it in our local community. So I was really struck as to why is it that suddenly this issue has been raised. One thing that immediately became clear to me was that if this became legislation, it would prevent Hindus from being seen as equal in the eyes of the law. Every human being has the right to be treated equally in front of the law. But a caste introduced into legislation automatically would insert a presumed hierarchy that some people would automatically be guilty just by virtue of their surname as being potentially discriminatory against others. So we have youngsters who've been born in this country, who would have grown up in this country, and the law would have assumed that because they were probably from a Kshatriya or a Brahmin family, then they would fit in to a legal framework which automatically discriminated against them. So this was bad law. In principle, it struck me as being bad law. So then I started to dig a little bit deeper. When I realized that another consequence would be that it would destroy the friendships that our generations had made with each other across all communities. We have Gujaratis, Punjabis, um, Lohanas and uh, uh, Shadmas and everything, all working in a very harmonious manner in this country. And it struck me that once people started to speak about caste in the way that this law would require us to do, suddenly our community cohesion would be damaged. So this was a very, very serious problem. I saw potentially the benefits of three generations of investment in the United Kingdom being taken away from us to be replaced by community friction. That's where my caste journey started. In order to challenge the legislation, I understood that we needed to check within our own community and make sure this wasn't the problem they painted. But then I also wanted to know the answer to one particular question. All of our Shastra, they talk about each of us being Jivatma, that every one of us has, we are an Ansh of Padmatma. And that's our true identity. And um, Adi Shankaracharyaji in his Nirvan Shatkam says it so beautifully that we are not anything except Atma. We are not the coating that we occupy. We are not um, uh, our paramparas, you know, etc. We are Atma. And so how is it possible for a dharmic civilization which views everybody as Atma to suddenly create something like a hierarchical, hereditary, endogamous class system? I needed to answer this question for myself. How did one lead to the other? And that was where the journey into understanding how this concept was created began. As the journey continued, I began to find an awful lot of information about the caste concept, how it was created, when it first arrived on Bharat's shores, why it was done, and who was responsible for it. Now, there are many books written about caste. And many of them are seven, eight hundred pages, many volumes, etc., etc. It's a subject that people in Bharat have been speaking about for a long, long period of time. Whether it was Gandhiji, Ambedkarji, all of the scholars that we have, they've all spoken about this issue. But it hadn't gotten rid of caste consciousness. It hadn't gotten rid of the hierarchy 
which was somehow imprinted within our national civilizational consciousness. So in the United Kingdom, we had managed, without knowing, to dissolve caste consciousness. And I knew that the solution to this would be to dissolve caste consciousness in its entirety. So the journey took me into Shastra, into Itihas, and then into the space of the colonial times in Bharat. And that's where the real part of my journey started. Ultimately, what I wanted to do was to produce a simple to understand, readily accessible body of knowledge, which could contribute towards dissolving caste consciousness. The equality of Atma is enshrined in our Shastra. There is no discrepancy. Krishnji, Krishnji describes it so well when he says Atma has no um, discriminating factors at all. It can't be cut, it can't be burnt, it's the same for everybody. And so I wanted to get to the stage where what we had done in the UK, dissolve caste consciousness, would be something that anybody and everybody could do. And that this question, this allegation that Bharatiyas, that Hindus are always caste conscious, this could be dispelled forever. This needed to be done. And the journey was an extraordinary journey. So the book that um, I've produced, it covers quite a few areas. I'm hoping that somebody who reads the book will have the ABC about the history, about the Shastra, about the social construct, and about the historical context, so that every person can happily and with pride engage with this conversation. We need to be able to be comfortable in talking to anyone, our own children, our own family members, the members of our own Bharatiya community who feel isolated, who feel oppressed, who have been targeted, whether they are the Dalit community as they choose to call themselves, or even whether it's that child who is born in a poor Brahmin family, but finds himself discriminated against by virtue of his birth and having to attain higher marks or leap through bigger hurdles, that's equally discrimination as well, and it's an injustice. So the purpose of the book is to give everyone the ABCs to engage in this conversation and move everyone to a position of equality. So today what I'm going to share with you are a few of the, the highlights or a few of the key things that I discovered on this journey of um, caste. Everybody knows that caste was, it's a Portuguese word. And it's the sort of word that it's alien to us, but the precise definition for caste is a, a social structure which is hereditary, it's hierarchical, and it's endogamous. Now, in the European context, the word caste actually means class. Now, I would be very happy if legislation was passed, if campaigns were done to get rid of class discrimination. Class discrimination is something that everybody thinks is not a good thing. A person has a right to be treated equally in all respects. And so if the British legislators had been talking about class, then that would have been no problem. We would say, happily, let's get rid of class discrimination. But they refused to accept the word class. It had to be caste. And this is where the first red flag occurred to me. Why are they not accepting the word class? This would give the solution, and yet they insisted on caste. And the reason that they insisted on caste, as I found out subsequently, 
is that caste is in fact, it's, it's what I've called a colonial trope. It's an accusation, it's a straw man, it's a definition of what you are without any, any reference to who you are. It's an image that somebody else has created. And with a trope, you can leverage a response. This is classic, um, almost Goebbels-like propaganda. Goebbels was Hitler's propaganda chief, and he created the science of how to generate um, particular responses from a general public. And if you look at caste, the word, you suddenly realize that, in fact, this is a colonial trope. And what I then termed, I created an idea of a caste bomb. And basically what a caste bomb is, is if you are in a conversation with a Hindu and you want to diminish a Hindu, all you have to do is drop in the word caste. And suddenly the Hindu is guaranteed to feel vulnerable, to feel embarrassed, to feel ashamed. And this is a programmed response. It's a trigger to a programmed response. The Hindu will feel that, but the non-Hindu will feel superior will feel as though they're a saviour, will feel as though civilizationally they have actually got some responsibility to prevent the savage Hindu from his casteism. So this is a colonial trope. There are one or two other aspects which help us understand that this is a colonial trope. If there is a genuine injustice being inflicted, if there is a principle of human rights which needs to be re-established, then that human right has to be applicable to everybody. And the way in which we secure that is by pursuing the principle and not the profit. There are many people who pursue principle only as far as it profits them, only in far, as far as they have something to gain by it, whether it's politically, whether it's economically, whether it's um, sociologically or even religiously. There are many people who will tout a principle, but only for profit for some denomination and group. Now, if we really had a group of people who were saying, we want human equality, we want equal rights, they would be as concerned for the poor Brahmin child at the top of the scale who is being um, the target of an injustice as they are for the poor economically disadvantaged person at the other end of a social scale. That's the principle at play. If, however, what the story is, is that there is one group who are superior, the other group who are inferior, and group A discriminates against group B, so we have to punish group A. That's a classic colonialist trope, and that is the principle of divide and rule. Now, when you look for divide and rule, you have to understand an awful lot about what happened in colonialist times. And what I'm going to do is take you through a very quick and relatively short PowerPoint that I've put together to highlight a couple of bits of information that some people may know and others may not know, but I think it would serve everybody to, to recognize these when they, they, they encounter them. So here is a, uh, a short presentation. Um, I'll move those. This, I've, perhaps some of you have realized this, but this was the event that caused me to publish this book. We successfully defeated the evangelical attempt to tarnish our community name in the United Kingdom as being casteist Hindus. And so we all settled down thinking the problem had gone away. 
But then last year, this book came out and you see the word cast written right across it. And Oprah sent a copy of this particular book to the top 500 companies, to their CEOs in America, saying, this is an incredible book, you have to read it. Now, had the title of this book been class, which is actually what the Portuguese word caste means, then we wouldn't have had any difficulty with it at all. We'd have thought this is actually potentially a good piece of work. But by calling it caste, all of a sudden, it resurrected in everybody's minds the notion of the Hindu caste system. And this notion is something that has been spread for the, be the best part of 300 years. So when this book came out, I suddenly realized that our mission to dissolve caste consciousness had taken a huge step backward. It had been damaged quite significantly. And so all of the findings that I had managed to put together to challenge and defeat the legislation in the House of Lords and the House of Commons, I put it together, contextualized it, and then launched it as a book. And that book is what we're talking about today. Um, now, here's the context I wanted to quickly touch base on. We are an ancient civilization. There is phenomenal work being done by Nilesh Okji and other scholars who are now creating our own history of our own civilization, our own timeline. That in itself is a huge step towards decolonizing our own identity. Now, according to Nileshji and many scholars now, we are able to chart our own history going back almost 18,000 years. 18,000 years of continuous civilized evolution of a group of people is relatively unknown, especially to the level of documentation and historical record keeping that our civilization has. There are other civilizations which are also ancient, but very few of them have the archeological or literary historical evidence that we have. So we can say that we go back an awful long time, at least 18,000 years to perhaps 20,000 years. The difference is that the Europeans, when they came to Bharat, they represent this tiny little time slice here at the latest, um, the last uh, 400, 500 years. And it's what happened in that time space, which we as a civilization and as a nation have not paid too much attention to. In 1947, we thought our dark millennium had come to an end. And by and large, it had in that the opportunity for us to stand up and speak for ourselves, to repair the trauma that was inflicted upon us, to repair our civilizational identity, that opportunity became in our grasp in 47. But we have such a lot of work before we can even claim independence. We are not yet independent at the moment, we are just standing up off our knees, dusting ourselves down, a little bit surprised that we're still here because the vast majority of civilizations which were targeted by Abrahamic colonialization, they have not survived in this manner. So at the moment, we're in the, we're moving from the survival mode to what I call the revival stage. And that is struggling to heal our own selves and our own civilizational identity. But a part of that requires us to understand what actually was going on in the world in this period here. The period from when the uh, Mughals came, but more importantly, the period when the British came and the Europeans came. Because something happened when under European colonization, which hadn't happened under the Islamic colonization of India. And that was the pollution and the conscious destruction 
of our identity. Now, if you think of 18,000 years, there is a beautiful understanding that we need to have, and that is that a civilization evolves a civilizational identity over a period of time. A group of people will learn lessons, they will acquire knowledge, they will secure vidya, they will understand something deeply, they will have a darshan of something or other, and they pass them and share them within their civilization. And what is born is a civilization identity. And that identity is the asset value of that whole life experience of thousands of years and millions of people. That identity is unique to every civilization. And we had that identity, and that identity created prosperity, it created harmony, and it created a glimpse of how every human being is connected to divinity. An incredibly valuable human asset, the Bharatiya Dharmic identity. But in that period of British colonization, there was an attempt to destroy that identity. The previous colonization had been to destroy physical identity. But this British colonization was to destroy our deeply held spiritual and cultural identity. Now, this is very important. A civilization moves itself forward on the basis of its identity. If you think of, um, if you think of a motor vehicle, let's say you have a, a petrol vehicle, it runs on petrol. Let's say it's a super performance um, racing car and you put petrol in and it works beautifully. If you put diesel into it, what happens is it starts to malfunction. There is friction, there is conflict between the various parts of the engine. It stutters, it's unable to move forward, and there is a great degree of friction in all of its components and parts. What we as a, a civilization are going through is we are now trying to recover from a false identity which was injected in us. If you think of the Abrahamic European identity as fuel, it's the fuel which drove them to destroy indigenous civilizations in every corner of the world. That fuel was poured into the Bharatiya consciousness. And that fuel is doing exactly the same for us as it would have done in, in my analogy of diesel going into a petrol car. Now, if you have a look at the manner in which it was done, caste actually is a part of that deliberate attempt to pollute the civilizational fuel which drives the Bharatiya identity. So we have two choices. If somebody pours diesel into your petrol car, you can either tune or try and tune it. You can tweak the sparking plugs, the timing, and all of those sorts of things and try and fix it. Or you realize that there is a pollutant in your civilizational identity and you get rid of it. You get rid of it and then connect with the original fuel that was driving you. Now, within the current conversation of caste, the framework that this conversation is conducted within isn't a Bharatiya framework. We are still conducting this conversation in a European Christian framework. And that is the same as tinkering with the parts of the engine and tuning it. The only solution for us is actually to get rid of this caste consciousness in its entirety. Now, to help you understand and to provide a bit of evidence as to what was going on in the rest of the world, if you really want to understand divide and rule as a principle, it's good to have a look at how divide and rule was implemented 
in other parts of the world. Now, at this moment, everybody accepts the current framework around the conversation of racism. But it's probably interesting to know the first time white people came into existence in terms of a legal issue was 1664. In the United States, in 1664, the legislators came to the understanding that white people needed to be protected and separated as a, as a group, as a genetic group. And so they created laws which prevented non-white people from having access to equality of resources. And most people probably don't know, but at the very first Congress in the United States, which was March um, 1789, and it ran till um, early in the 1900s, the very first Congress passed legislation which basically said that you could not be an American citizen unless you were white. It expressly stated that only white people could become American citizens by naturalization. Now, the way that the white Europeans and especially Americans talk is they, they seem to express themselves as being the the measurement of all that is good and uh, everything that's beneficial, they're the arbiters of it. But who would have believed that that piece of legislation wasn't disposed of until 1952? Okay, so whilst in Bharat, we were struggling with an independence struggle, the same people who were oppressing Bharatiyas on the other side of the world had in place a, a separate divide and rule policy. And it was very, very successful. And you can see even to this day in America, there are race problems. And there will always be problems because the framework which created the concept is the framework within which the solution is being looked for. And it can't be found. The moment you presume multiplicity of races, you will always have divide and rule conflicts. You will always have people manipulating that identity politics. We know a better way. We have to find a better way. One of the other things to bear in mind is the same divide and rule policy was used in Africa very, very successfully, only very recently in Rwanda. A group of Hutus and Tutsis, they had been living together for centuries, and then the Roman Catholic Church intervened. In fact, the Pope gave a public apology for the role of the Catholic Church in, I think, 800,000 deaths. And yet that was a classic divide and rule policy. Two groups set conflict between them, and then forever and a day, you can derive the benefit of stealing resources. So when you understand that this was going on around the world in this area, and then look at the caste situation, you have a different set of parameters which come into view, and you can look at it slightly differently. And that's what I did with the, the book that I have then written. I was able to present to the British the manner in which caste had deliberately been sculpted as a divide and rule policy. Now, we successfully defeated that legislation, but my real hope is that, and I express this in the book, is that we can find ways in which we can reach out to all of our brothers and sisters and get rid of a myth that was created by the colonialists. And the myth was, it's a lie, that to be born an Indian is to belong to a caste, right? We automatically assume that this is true, and that is how successful this particular 
colonial divide and rule issue was, there is no requirement to be born in any group whatsoever, right? We have so many scriptures which talk about the benefits of kul, bradri, parampara, varna, all of these things are clearly defined and yet not one of them says that they are a caste, that you must marry within them, that you must stay in the one that you have been born into. We had fluidity of varna and there is more than enough history to be able to establish that that was the case. So the first step is stop using the word caste. Whenever we talk, we have more precise words. If we are talking about attitudes, about a person's guna mix, how much sattva, rajas, tamas, etc. is present in a person, we're talking about varna, we're not talking about caste. When we're talking about a difference between the Jat community and the non-Jat community, that's nothing to do with caste, right? We are talking about Jati. All of these have got very precise words in the Bharatiya context, and if we stick to those, we can actually undo the harm that was caused by this caste concept. Now, to give you an idea, I've mentioned this in one of my books, but there, there is plenty of evidence to show that this caste concept was created deliberately, it was created with malice, and the date that I've identified in the book was the 1st of January, um, 1844. That's the date when a conference of colonizing organizations came together in Madras and created the idea of using caste to deconstruct what they called this marvelous institution of India. The manner in which Bharat had organized jatis, varnas, kul, paramparas, they identified as being incredible. They called it this marvelous institution of Bharat. And what they were referring to was the jatis. So they knew it was successful. And they also said on that date, they stated that the only thing betwixt Christ and the Hindus was this institution of Jatis, Vadna and Prampra, which they called caste. It's clearly stated in their own records and I reference them in the book itself. So turning to this caste bomb, um, you will recognize when the caste bomb occurs, it occurs all of the time. Whenever there is a Hindu and a conversation is occurring, you can guarantee that within a few moments, somebody will mention caste. I was invited only a few weeks ago to participate in a conference with the BBC producers. And I had written down on a piece of paper before the conference started, Hindu caste. And I was just waiting for the word to be mentioned. And lo and behold, within two or three minutes of the conversation turning to Hindus, all of a sudden, everybody was talking about caste. This is how predictable it is. On um, YouTube, there is a video of mine where I was again interviewed at the BBC in a conference, and it was a debate. The moment I talked about good things about Sanatana Dharma, somebody introduced the caste bomb. Now, it's really important that we understand this phenomenon of a caste bomb because one of its targets is our children. There is an easy way to use a trope to make children ashamed and embarrassed about their own ancestors. This is how a caste bomb works. And you will find it in virtually in every school. In the West, if you go to a school and you ask um, the RE teachers to talk about Hinduism, the chances are they will start and talk about two or three things. One is Gali, 
and how terrible she looks. The other is caste, and then the third will be sati. All of these are tropes. They are tropes designed to humiliate a Hindu. Now, please, everybody do understand the caste bomb, and let's talk to our children about this colonialist trope. Otherwise, they'll be vulnerable to us. The second people we need to have this conversation with are the Christian community as well, because the vast majority of Christians have no idea that this is what was done. When I published the book here, I shared it with many of my Christian friends, and they were horrified. They had no idea that this had been done. They had all, always been taught history, normally by Anglican Christian Church of England schools, which supported the trope. They genuinely thought that Hindus were savages who had this terrible caste system and that they had an obligation to save us from ourselves. We have to undo this harm because they too are striving and laboring under a deceit. And the third group we have to reach out to are anybody who has been distanced or discriminated against by the use of this caste trope. This is our work. We need to step up and do it ourselves. Nobody else is going to do this for us. So that was the objective of the book. Now, I'm going to just touch on one or two small ideas. One is visualize an India free of caste. Okay, just hold in your mind what that would look like. Not equality between castes because equality between castes can never be achieved because the caste concept is created to divide and rule. But we can get rid of the caste concept and revert back to equality according to Dharmashastra. And I would share with people that when the British came, this is to rebut those who think of uh, the, the Bharatiyas as being the source of this uh, discrimination, of the 600 plus principalities which were in existence when the British came, over 400 were ruled by Shudra kings. This is evidence, this is recorded. And yet when the British left, the biggest transfer of asset wealth and land was from the Shudra kings to the British institutions, most notably the churches. So if you want to try and have a look at who impoverished who, whose assets were taken and where did they go, that's a stark reminder of the facts on the ground of what really happened. And it's a fundamental principle of divide and rule. You steal the assets of one group and you blame it on the other group who you want to also target and destroy. This is a very simple principle. There are many records in the House of Lords of the British Parliament where people actually proudly declaim, de uh, declare this to be their intention, their objective. They make statements such as divide and rule worked for the Roman Empire. Why shouldn't it work for us in India? They make statements such as we have to change the way in which the Indians think. So they hold us in awe. So they're actually rendered silent and speechless when they confront us, but they must never suspect the true purpose of the work that we're doing. There are records which prove that uh, without uh, any uh, contest, um, without any contention, that this was done deliberately. There are records in the censuses which were run. There are records of um, Risley where he says that white people with sharp noses are more evolved than dark people with flat noses. 
Bear in mind also, in that time frame that I'm talking about, we had the doctrine of discovery underway. The Christian doctrine that if you weren't Christian, you didn't have a soul and that you were animal. And so your assets, your wealth, even your body could be exploited in the service of Christendom. This is well documented. This is not anything that is disputed. So without looking at that period of history, which immediately preceded 1947, we can't understand fully how caste was actually sculpted. And I mention in the book that it's not a coincidence that wherever you go in the world, they have heard of caste. It is even today being taught as a colonialist trope in schools throughout the US and throughout Europe. It's not a coincidence that the Christian dominated teaching of history throughout Europe talks about us in this way. It's not a coincidence that of the 26 European nations, 24 don't even acknowledge Sanatan Dharam as a state legally recognized religion. All of these are facts about the history within which the Bharatiya experience of colonialism has to be considered. And what I'm hoping with the book is to introduce these ideas to our Bharat community, Bharatiya community, so that we can understand ourselves better, so that we can accelerate our own healing and restore our inter-community harmony quickly. And we can do so in a, a space which is safe. Now, this aspect is really important, a, a space which is safe. One of the identity markers of a colonialist is that they have no respect for boundaries. They love to talk about other people. They love to take a magnifying glass and look at other people's problems. It doesn't matter whether it's under the mask of BBC reporting or whether it's academics who are steeped in Indology, they have no respect for boundaries. And when there is a family dispute or a family difference, the first thing we're taught to do is to try and resolve it within the family. There are very few third parties who have no conflict of interest with us. So one of the things that we have to do is to create safe spaces and push people out who have a conflict of civilizational interest with us. They have no role to play in this conversation. Now they will keep trying to push themselves in. Um, and I will happily mention people like Audrey Trishka. People like Audrey are supposedly academics, but they will eternally find fault with us and fill the bandwidth one, it doesn't give us the time to heal. And two, it doesn't give us time to actually have a look at their own houses. Our simple village rules about if it's a problem in the family, sit down and let's sort it out for everybody's advantage is one. Another rule is that unless your own house is in order, you can't fix somebody else's house. Now, what is happening is Bharatiyas are all over the world. And we're all people like myself. We're all thinking, well, hang on. We've had almost 300 years of being lectured to about everything that's wrong with India and the Indian civilization, the Hindu civilization. But if you have a look at their homes, their houses, their societies, there are big problems there. And one thing about our Bharatiya community, our Hindu community, is that we are, we are civilizational builders. Wherever we go, we try and build the civilization where we are. If there is a weakness in any particular, particular area, we will go there and try and 
perhaps heal or rectify whatever that weakness is. We go to countries, if economics is the problem, we're entrepreneurial. If health is the problem, we have doctors. We are in one way, shape, we're like the stem cells of civilizations, aren't we? We go everywhere and start to change ourselves in order to be able to satisfy the greater good of the community. And this is our civilizational ethos, our civilizational identity that I referred to. And this is important that we recognize and remember that that's what this is. One last thing I'd like to touch on in conclusion is that until we recognize who we are, we actually can't heal. That is most important. In our yoga sadhana, we have a stage called swadhyaya, which is self-scrutiny. And we are very good at self-scrutiny. We are always scrutinizing ourselves in response to somebody else's criticism. And we have been doing this now for the, the last uh, 50, 60, 70 years. And you will notice that the more we scrutinize and try and fix ourselves, the more criticisms come our way. The moment we start to assert our identity, allegations arise of Hindutva, of right-wing extremism, and all of the usual ad hominems that can be directed towards us are being directed towards us, and they will increase. We have to recognize that, but on the basis of studying our own civilization and our own history, placing it in the context of humanity and what human beings have been doing for the last thousand years, we will come to a better understanding of who we really are. We will get a bit of Atma Vishwas coming back to us and recognizing that actually we have a right to share our voice in the human family in every country. We have got incredible gifts to offer. Many of those incredible gifts that we offer will cause the post-colonial world a little bit of embarrassment. The more we talk about our history, the more uncomfortable they're going to be. But they have to recognize that when we talk about our history, we are, we are Hindus, we don't do it as a threat to them. We do it in the manner such that they can recognize it, that they can join us in overcoming this stage, and where need be, make appropriate re restitution or reparations, and then we can all move forward. Because until that happens, there will be denial, there will be defensive responses from the European communities, and those defensive responses will only prolong the friction and the discomfort that uh, they were responsible for. And so the more we do our swadhyaya, the more we understand what was done to us, the stronger we become, the more tightly knit and coherent we become as a community, the better our chances will be to actually then contribute in a more meaningful manner to the wider human problems that inflict us. This is, uh, it's been a journey for us here in the United Kingdom. I think the publication of the book and the revelations that are contained in the book came as a shock to the British public and to the British establishment. We're past that shock stage now. And they have recognized that if they pursue this issue with us, and if they have any determination to impose a caste ideology upon us, they recognize it's an act of violence. And so they will not do it here. We need to get to the same stage where the rest of Europe recognizes what was done. We have to get to the same stage very quickly in the US where the caste bomb is, is now being leveraged and stop that from happening and harming innocent people. 
I hope that within a very short space of time, Bharat itself will be strong enough to say to the rest of the world, thank you for your contributions about caste. We don't need to hear any more. We are now going to take hold of this issue and we are now going to find a dharmic solution to it. When that happens, I would like to see within, certainly within my lifetime, uh, maybe even within five years, maybe even within a decade, this caste concept being disposed of in its entirety so that no Hindu, no child, no Hindu is burdened with the belief that their ancestors were born discriminators. That's far from the truth. And I provide the evidence and sufficient material within the book to support that. Now, I've probably spoken um, for more than enough time, and I don't want to labor on and talk about stuff which is in the book, which anybody can read. And um, please do have a, a, a look through it. What I'd really like to do is perhaps have some conversations with people and maybe answer specific issues, uh, maybe make uh, some progress towards finding solutions for very real on the ground issues that exist at this moment in time. Uh, I am Dinesh Pai. My question is, uh, I, I am a teacher, I'm a professor. Uh, first of all, very good talk, very lucid. I learned a lot. Uh, how do I educate others, uh, even as I educate myself, uh, and to remove this misconception that we shouldn't be cowed down when people from different religions talk about caste to us? Dineshji, thank you for that wonderful question. Um, a pragmatic and a practical question to start the process with. So when, when I started to write this book, there was a thought in the back of my mind, and that was I didn't want to just fill people's heads with data. What I wanted to do was to potentially inflame them into activity. And so the manner in which the book is written is that as you go through step by step and realize what was done to us, how it was done to us, when, when you come to the end of it, you will have not only the material with which to proceed, but you will also have that sense of indignation. You will also have reinstilled that sense of pride. And what I'm hoping to do is to also instill that sense of urgency that we cannot be passive in this endeavor now. And all three of those, the feedback that I've had is that the book does provide the feedback for all of those. Now, when it comes to actual activity, we need to be creative. And this is something that as a civilization recovering from trans mechanics of transgenerational trauma, um, a civilization that's recovering, it, um, it stutters and pauses, it halts with a lack of confidence when it comes to actually enact and do things. And so what I'm hoping is that the book will provide the fuel for people to become a bit more risk-taking. And in my conversations here in the UK, I regularly engage with the most ardent evangelicals who are present. And I engage with them because one, I know I'm right, and it's a great place to be. Secondly, I delight in seeing the discovery in their own eyes when they realize they are the victims of a lie as much as we are the victims of a lie. So I look for these opportunities. And in everybody's circumstances, there are going to be different opportunities and different requirements. As an educator, to some degree, I think you're potentially going to be a little bit confined 
within the parameters of what can and can't be said dependent upon your locality. But I've tried to be as extreme in terms of putting everything out there so that other people don't have to. You can refer to the work and maybe some of the videos that I've put out there. But it does require us to act now. I would recommend that you approach your mandir, local mandir, and say, we want a conversation on this issue. Perhaps use some of the material, use some of the videos, and start that process rolling. The more conversations we can have, the more of the bandwidth we can occupy with our side of the story. Because the opposition, they have invested thousands of man hours, maybe even man years, in nurturing and creating this trope. They occupy the bandwidth right now in every academic institution, in every interfaith conversation. It's their voice. So it doesn't really matter what you do. I would suggest that try something, experiment with it. And there is enough material in the book to guarantee that you will be successful. And once you have had a few successful outings, then you understand that Anand comes in many forms. And as an educator, I know that you will be absolutely delighted by the response you're going to get from, and the success that you get in engaging with other people on this issue. Reach out to the Christian community. That's where a huge amount of work's to be done. Reach out to members of our community and it will start to happen. There is an incredible advantage in having Satya on our, on our, in our corner. We never knew it. But once you know it and you know the mechanics, then all of a sudden you're empowered to make a contribution. But um, start the debate. Let's not be fearful. And the book equips everybody to be completely shame-free. I had a, a dear friend of mine who responded to me saying, Stishi, I've been in many interfaith conversations and I always am vulnerable that sooner or later somebody is going to pull out something from my history and whatever I'm wanting to do will be undermined. And he said, once I read the book, I almost felt as though my spine straightened because I knew nobody would ever be able to accuse me and my ancestors of being casteist. And that's the, that's the intention. So I would say enjoy, engage with this problem. We have no reason to be fearful. We have no reason to be ashamed. And we have a responsibility to make this solution happen. Remember, there are our own brothers and sisters who we have been all separated by this trope. And it's up to us to bring it all together again. Namaste and thank you, Satishji. Uh, it was such a wonderful delight uh, to hear you. I think thank I'm you, motivated. I'm motivated. I'll probably I'll buy the book right away, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> thank you well, so much. No, it's my pleasure. And as I say, please, everybody who's on the group, this is a project. This is not, it's not going to finish after the session today. And so please get back in touch with Sangam. Please get back in touch with myself through Twitter and let me know what's gone on. And if you come across a particular problem or something intractable, let me know and let's work out a strategy to heal it. We can do this together. You made a remark that imagine a country or world, imagine an India without caste. Now, I am um, born a Sharma, married to a Sharma, married to a Brahmin. So how do I imagine that kind of India when it is I who am otherized most of the time? Uh, I'm a teacher. I have taught in, the university, in a university. So both as a teacher and as students, it is the upper caste, the Brahmins who are otherized all the time. My kid needs at least 95% to get through in any uh, 
my friend's uh, niece got 94.6% and the mother and the child were crying because she has no future in Delhi. And it's an injustice, Apadnaji. And uh, no, it's a wonderful question. Thank you for asking a very real and um, immediate question that needs to be resolved. Now, I'm going to step back for one moment. I said in 47, we attained independence. Okay. And I gave examples of the horrific mindset of the people who wanted Bharatiya identity dissolved. They didn't disappear in 1947. They didn't suddenly become whiter than white, if I can use that as a, a mischievous expression. They're still there. And evil is still being inflicted on the non-white world. This is a reality that we have to recognize. And when somebody from that background leverages a principle to harm us, we, rec we have to recognize that actually there is another intention. Now, when it comes to this, there is something which I, I would like to perhaps do a little project and work with some people on. There is a United Nations resolution, the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. It's a very powerful declaration, and it asserts the equality under law of indigenous civilizations to freely proceed to um, protect and to nurture their own indigenous identities with complete equality. Nobody has ever leveraged that from India for our own advantage. Now, under that resolution, UNDRIP 1970, um, sorry, 2003 it was, 177 countries got together to draw a boundary and say to the rest of the world, please leave us alone. Our indigenous civilizations are the way, our way of doing things is very, very valuable for us. Somebody somewhere needs to bring a test case and say, under the United Nations declarations, all Hindus are entitled to complete equality in front of the law. One of these days, I'm, I, I might even try and encourage uh, a friend of mine, Dr. Subramanian Swamiji, to bring a mischievous PIL in this particular regard or some sort of legislation. It needs to be done because it is, it is an act of violence to say to a child that just because of your surname, you cannot receive equality in the eyes of the law. Now, there are two other aspects of this. One is political weaponization of victimhood. This is a fundamental part of the Bharati experience. Remember, Bharat was slashed into three pieces using the political weaponization of victimhood. It's an established reality, the myth of Christian victimhood. Books have been written on it. There have been books written about the myth of Islamist victimhood. And yet, Bharat is the only country which was trifurcated because the Hindu was painted as being so savage that other communities needed to be protected from them. Now that myth is enshrined in Bharatiya consciousness and it's a lie. And the only way we get rid of this lie is, by be, be, is literally by getting enough people together, having clarity of thought and demanding equality in front of international legal authorities. I may well take this up. If I have enough support, I may well bring an action against something like the, um, the Indian government at the United Nations to say that they are discriminating against the human rights of the indigenous people. But it is, you're absolutely right. It's no longer acceptable for any child in Bharat 
to be able to have to go through life with economic, educational, and indeed religious handcuffs tied behind their backs with a burden of a guilt which is completely manufactured. It's an injustice. And here's the other thing. If there are members of our community who are watching this who are not Brahmins, who are not Kshatriya, who are members of the oppressed classes, if you genuinely want a, a situation in Bharat where equality is available for all, equality will never be secured on the basis of victimizing innocent people, on the basis of in, imposing an injustice on innocent people. So we are all partners in this. We have to have every group coming together and saying, no, we want every person to have the human right of receiving the benefits that their labor should bring to them without being disadvantaged. So, Aparnaji, um, like I said, the time is here to act. We have a window of opportunity. And when you have the information, no external agency can point a finger at Bharat's human rights records. No external agency can in any way undermine what's being done, so long as you know what the rest of the world is up to. In the past, we've never had the courage or the knowledge or the wherewithal to be able to say, actually, aapka ghar jo hai, humne dekha hai. Theek Usko swaro, as we would say in Punjabi or Hindi. Okay, we have to be able to do this. And it just takes confidence. This is the task of our generation. Right? This is the task of healing our Hindu community from what was done to us that this generation has to shoulder. When it's done, Bharat will move into what I call the revival stage. We will move from survival to revival to thrival, which is a word I made up, but it seemed to fit in with the Ivo sort of uh, words. So we have to move towards thrival, and that will happen when we get rid of all of these old um, injustices that were put in by colonialists. There is nothing that we can't get rid of. One, one bit to add to what you're saying. It's uh, not just the will of the people or uh, within India and outside, but I think getting rid of uh, us, uh, getting rid of the reservation system requires a lot of political spine, which I'm not sure our country has. Well, the reservation system is a classic example of how a colonialist trope destroys indigenous civilizations. Right? I start the book with a statement saying there is nothing that white supremacists enjoy more than watching non-white people destroy each other. And the reservation system is a classic example of that principle in action. When we recognize that its roots were colonial and that it was installed to cause friction, we then work towards depriving the politicians of their right to do that. Because that's the only obstacle now, political benefit in leveraging this. I know that there are many communities who were once upon a time OBCs or SCs, etc., who needed economic um, strength to rebuild them. But many of those people are already saying, you know, we derive a huge amount of benefit and we do not want our children spoiled and corrupted by virtue of the fact that they leverage unfair advantage. In, in the Punjabi villages, we used to say that if you, you, you have to be careful never to take money from anybody else because if somebody wants to destroy you, they'll give you something secretly and free of charge. <laughs> so, but you were taught this, don't take money from a stranger 
because the intention behind it is psychologically, morally and spiritually damaging. And there are many people who recognize this. And we have prime ministers and presidents who are from what the colonialists call the low castes. Bharat has no need to be so um, vulnerable to accusations anymore. We can sort all of these issues out and they're not complicated so long as we engage with them with courage. And let's create the Kurukshetras where we can fight this particular dimension of the Dharmayud. What we've never done in the past is create our own Kurukshetras. We've never created fora in which these battles are to be engaged in, conducted and successfully won. We've always been invited into other people's battles where we go there weak and lacking in confidence and are continuously defeated. But there is enough knowledge and understanding and also mastery of the English language. Remember, most of what's done to us is done in the English language. And now there is more than enough mastery of the English language and knowledge of European history to be able to fight in those Kurukshetras. But let's create them. Let's create them and fight this battle. Thank you very much, Abadnaji. And um, don't be disheartened. You know, if it's not in this life, then there's no other It is very much understood and try to advise my uh, classmates as well that how caste system is alien to the dharmic civilization and how the caste system is not even a rough outline of um, the Varna Dharma Ashram that we have in India. But um, every time, whenever there is a discussion on caste system or Dalit politics, it is directly um, linked to scriptures, even though the scriptures don't have any link with the Dalit presence of any Dalit term or untouchability. Uh, and the very the most crucial, the most crit- critical part of the scriptures is Manuspriti. And whenever I go to uh, have something on Manuspriti, the content that I have for Manuspriti is more against it and uh, conclusively turns against the ex- existence of my religion. Um, so I am willing to uh, know from you, you mentioned about the scriptures, but the very crucial part of scriptures has been always the Manuspriti. And I am right now in a part of a university which talks about Azadi from Manu. So That's a um, wonderful, wonderful question. And um, you have, firstly, you have my respect and uh, appreciation. I would share with you that the caste system in Britain exists to this day. Okay? So we have a royal family who are hereditary, hierarchical, and endogamous. In fact, when a royal marries somebody who is not a royal, they marry a commoner. Okay, this is common language. And in the United Kingdom, the heart of the caste system, us immigrants, we are the low caste. All right? We are the, uh, the, the people who uh, supposedly should be doing all of the unpleasant work for the benefit of the other established castes in this country. And to succeed here, If I were to share with you some of the horror stories that uh, three generations have had to go through to get to the stage where we now earn a degree of respect in this community, you would be speechless. Um, I Let me give you one example. Okay, I had my education in this country, having secured very good results and uh, an excellent university career. I started to apply for jobs and I would never get an interview even, not a single interview. Until somebody said to me, Satishji, change the name on your application form from Satish to something else. Okay. 
So I started to apply for jobs under the name Simon Sharma, right? And I started to get interviews straight away. In fact, my first offer of employment was under the name Simon Shudma. And so I started a job working at a place and my team people would be calling me Simon and I wouldn't realize they were talking to me because it wasn't my name. All right. And it was, took me about six months to get them to accept the notion that actually my real name was Satish. And so we have also fought these battles of injustice. And Swasthi what you're fighting is a battle of injustice. When it comes to scripture, this is a, an object in which, this is an area in which a great deal of work has yet to be done. Right? Manusmriti and the other Shastras, many of them were polluted and tainted, and we have the records in the United Kingdom of how this was deliberately done. Who inserted which verses, that's all readily available, but that conversation hasn't entered the public sphere yet. I have it on my list one of these days to introduce the idea of, um, okay, in Christianity, they had something called the Theodosian Code. Now, if you read the Theodosian Code, you will, be, you will think that the worst polluted, tainted version of Manusmriti is a lovely Sunday afternoon read. The Theodosian Code was a fundamental part of Christian jurisprudence throughout the Roman Empire and throughout Europe. And it makes Manusmriti look, look like a, a very gentle document altogether. One of these days, there will be a, an attempt and a project to decolonize all of our Shastra. And Manusmriti is probably the first one to be decolonized. There are statements in Manusmriti which are clearly interjections. They're, in, they're uh, in, interpositions. They're not genuine, they're not authentic. I recall there was a case in Bombay in the 1800s where a statue of um, Maharshi Manu was uh, going to be removed from outside of the court. And in fact, in that case, members of the uh, community of Shastris, they, they produced the true uh, meaning of every verse in Manusmriti, and they identified the verses that were later additions by colonialists. I'll dig up uh, the records, I've got them somewhere. But even Manusmriti, we, it, it's part of um, re-owning to decolonize, to re-purify, our own accounts of our own Shastra. And one of these days we will do this as well. But um, I would suggest that having had a glimpse of the hardships that the uh, Bharatiya community have gone through in Europe, a colonizing environment, um, and come out at the other end of it, have a little bit of conf confidence and um, uh, surety that what you're going through the benefits that you will receive from it will be unbelievable because what you're going through is actually sadhana as well. And I know that it's hard to take when you're young, but the fact that you have been, you've been able to attain such a good result, is it, it warms my heart. And I would say that justice is not too far away. It is part of decolonizing, and we will decolonize each and every part of our community and society which is struggling take a little bit of courage. Um, the stronger the challenge, the stronger the, uh, the person is created.
yes sir so my question is uh, like uh, we see hindu society it's based on rights uh, no sorry duties not rights okay uh, what many talk about equality so uh, i say we have uh, equality with right to dignity okay um, like uh, we can't compare a, a rich person with poor person okay rich will act like rich poor with act like uh, poor yes so uh, we can uh, compare them or make them at a equal stage okay you will uh, become middle class don't be a rich don't be a poor and when i come to reservation and all uh, caste system i see uh, like um, the upper uh, the one who are rich okay the one who are who have been rich uh, that caste are not been discriminated okay the people who are rich they are not been discriminated uh, discriminated and my second question is uh, like uh, i have uh, uh, i have seen many things like there are many much hate in the society against brahmans and upper class so how will you take them because i am seeing politics or politics also yeah uh, two two good points i i didn't catch quite clearly but i think i understood what you what you were saying um with regard to equality of dignity this is fundamental and there is a, there is a dimension of people who become rich in that it becomes about power and power can be used to maintain inequality and to deprive people of dignity now that's where the state has to come in the state has to be involved now i had a, a meeting with uh, shri juloram ji who was minister for tribal affairs uh, not too long ago when we were talking about this issue and some of the subjects were, were discussed but one of the things that struck me was a very important suggestion and he said we must have reservations on the basis of economic circumstances now moving from reservations on the basis of this colonial trope caste to reservations on the basis of economic status is a huge step forward and i think what it would do is it would break the stranglehold that this caste consciousness has on the way in which bharat works at the moment so any change in that what we'll find it'll it'll be like a house of cards suddenly one card pulled out and the whole thing comes crashing down if we can try and encourage the adoption of reservations across the board by economic status that will achieve a solution to both the points that you've raised now the question is how do we do this and how do we do this i've i've already gently suggested that um there is international legislation which hindus have never used to protect their indigenous rights it's worth investigation and it's worth using i look forward to the day when somebody goes to the united nations and presents a paper requiring the indian state to treat all of its citizens equally as a matter of law if somebody were to bring that at the united nations it would pass because the law exists to make that happen So I hope there are a group of inspired courageous people who think well actually that's going to be my contribution to history I'm going to make this one change happen the pieces are all there it just needs a group of people to learn and to work together to make it happen now so devanshi I look forward to seeing devanshi's resolution on the floor of the united nations to make this happen fasgana 
ज Right. Suddenly, people will change without expectation. We are seeing a United Kingdom which left Europe, the European Community, in Brexit. Nobody believed it would happen, and yet it happened in in the blink of an eyelid. There are huge changes going on in the world, and these changes actually happen quite quickly. All it requires is the right language, the right application of pressure at a pivotal point, and suddenly. change occurs and it doesn't take many the vast majority the history teaches us that the vast majority of humanity are actually quite passive and what you will have is a minority either who are toxic or a minority who are incredibly beneficial for society and when they start to act what happens is society changes it's always in the hands of small dynamic minorities and that's what we have to do we have to make sure we get a core dynamic minority engaged with these problems but it will happen it will happen so fast nobody realized that a megan markle sitting in america having an interview with one oprah would suddenly shake the british royal family to its roots the impact was huge in the uk where now everyone is talking about race 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 so don't underestimate the capacity to make change all it requires is clarity focus and a little bit of determination so i have two questions one historical one contemporary so the historical question is uh, uh, we know that there are upanishad doctrines say talk about monism and that everything is the same brahman and so on but uh, the same scriptures have also made a distinction between transactional world and uh, you know the paramarthika or the absolute truth so in that sense I, i don't think we can really use that as a you know tool to reduce caste feeling uh, uh, how do you think that we should go about using that in the contemporary world that is one question okay the second question is that uh, when you look it is all well to talk about the colonialists and whatever they did that's a matter of recorded history but in the contemporary world what you find is lot of people actually uh fanning the flames of this colonial tropes whatever it be uh, are actually lot of indians with indian names and hindu names how do you deal with that because there is clearly two some dialogue questions. breakdown in the family two lovely questions ramkrishnan ji i'm so glad you asked them i was hoping somebody would firstly with regard to shastra one thing that a colonialist trope does and the caste trope did specifically was to make caste a dimension of sanatan dharma okay the literature the records of what the evangelical movement did in bharat make it crystal clear they wanted to attack jatis because jatis preserved the culture and the religious practices of the society if you have as an example if i give you the example of the um 
carpenters. The carpenters would do puja uh, to their tools, but they would also do puja to Vishwakaramji. So within their jati, they had their own deity. And the colonialist evangelical movement recognized that they needed to deconstruct the jati integrity. But that wasn't enough. In order to come back to the Europe, shall we say, the British came back to Europe and they, they had this notion of trying to get rid of a competing ideology. And so they had to tell everybody in the United Kingdom, in England, in Europe, that the heathens in Bharat have a savage religion. They did not want the Bharatiya Dharmic vision of existence to come back to Europe, and they do not want it to come back today. So what they had to do was to connect Jatis with Varnas. With Varnas, you then point the finger at Sanatana Dharma and Shastra. Now, when I say that it's important that we recognize that Shastra does not endorse a caste environment, what I'm doing is delinking the Sanatan principles from the caste ideology. That's number one. That's vitally important, and that's why it must be done. We can have the conversation then in Europe and say, actually, this is nothing to do with Sanatana Dharma. I raised this issue in the parliamentary conversations when they said, oh, no, no, caste systems occur in all communities. And I said, excellent, but why is your research only focusing on brown Hindus? If they occur in all societies, why haven't you done research on the caste system in the Catholic community or in the Anglican community? Why is your focus purely on the Dharmic communities? So that's important that we delink caste from Sanatana Dharma, vitally important. The second question was about... Um, in about our own people, our own family. Okay. Now, if you study the manner in which divide and rule works, it's exactly the same. The best soldiers who carry out a divide and rule policy are what are called useful idiots. All right. And they're passionate people. They're generally innocent. They have good hearts. They're compassionate. They want to see justice, but they know nothing about history. And they're not devious and they're not cunning and they're not malicious but they are so critical to any divide and rule policy because they become the foot soldiers and they also become the defenders. So if you can convince members of a community of uh, an injustice that has been done, and if you do it skillfully enough, and if you do it when they're vulnerable, especially perhaps in their early years, you can instill an injustice, an appropriated anxiety about an injustice which is fictitious. And that is done regularly in religious traditions. There is a reason why evangelical missionary movements demand control over schools and hospitals. Because in schools, a child is vulnerable to any teaching that an authority figure gives to them. And in hospitals, a person who is under traumatic circumstances, emotionally vulnerable to somebody reaching out to give support or perhaps to sharing an ideology which may be supportive at that time. So there are reasons why our communities need to be approached and it needs to be explained to them what was done to them. And this is something I touch on in the book. The reason I put the book together in the manner I did was that when a Christian person reads it, 
in the silence of their own home, in the silence of their own thoughts, they will then consider, just one moment, am I actually a useful idiot in somebody else's scheme? That is a thought process we need to put forward to people. And it can't be done in public because if I challenge you in public and say to you, hang on a moment, you've been brainwashed by an evangelical movement, your response is going to be, no, 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 I don't believe that for a moment. But if I give you a book which you can read in the privacy of your own home, then you will consider it. And you might even start to think, well, actually, yes, I grew up in a missionary school. And in fact, I wasn't given the complete data. Maybe I was taught something incorrect. I have got quotations in the book from the British parliamentarians who explain this is their intention. There's a famous quotation from Macaulay, isn't there? The quotation about creating a Hindu who is brown on the outside, but whose value system is purely European. That is brainwashing. That is exactly how to manipulate an identity to serve your scheme for global imperial domination. And so the presence of our, our own family members who have Hindu names, but who are working to destroy their own civilization roots is something we have to factor in. And we can only factor it in when we have got the information to equip us to reach out to them and engage them courteously in conversation as one would in a situation where there is a dispute. We have the knowledge, we have the information, we need to create the fora, we need to create the mechanisms for disseminating this and then inviting people to heal. This is how one would do it with your own brother, with your own sister. If you were in a situation where a rift had been created by an outsider, you would want to do it in a loving, compassionate and open manner. That's how we have to engage. And there's enough information in the book, certainly, to facilitate that. Yes, uh, I just want to make a comment here. Uh, we talked about the reservation system in this lecture, but I think uh, what we have as reservation in India is not affirmative action because it, uh, it aims for not equality of opportunity, but equality of outcomes. What's your position on this? I totally agree. I think, you, again, we have to recognize that when the colonialists left, they left in place an infrastructure which was intended to exploit, to divide, and to extract resources, whether they're human resources, whether they're natural resources from Bharat, and that's still there. That mechanism, that infrastructure, that ideology is still present. The only thing is we have a different caretaker. We've had different caretakers for the last 60-odd years. And so I totally agree. There is no equality in law for Hindus in the Indian constitution and in the Indian framework. And that is an injustice of a colossal scale. But if the Indian government can't be um, encouraged to address this inequality, then I think an appeal to higher authority should be made. And in fact, even if we start the conversation of putting together some sort of a document to be presented at the United Nations, asking for equality of treatment in front of the law for all Indians, I think the, 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 the conversation would move forward straight away. I totally agree. Reservations in Bharat is a major act of injustice. In fact, I'm engaging in a conversation with Amnesty International, who are continuously pointing the finger at inequality in Bharat. But to date, they have never noticed that the one group who suffer the most inequality are actually the indigenous Hindus of, of India. 
Um, so we're going to have a very interesting conversation with them in due course. I want to ask that uh, I was listening uh, this topic for uh, some time and there are two different views regarding this jati or as we today know it caste. One side of view is that jati is a social capital and Hinduism believe in pluralism and every jati have their own custom deities and temples. So if we remove jati, then we are attacking the very fundamental of Hinduism. And we are, uh, if we remove jati, it is a cultural genocide of millions of people. And second view is that uh, that is mainstream today in today's time that uh, jati is a discriminatory and dividing force. It is an oppressive social system. So uh, in your view, what is the way forward? Are free flowing interchange of jati is possible? Uh, uh, in today's time, like happened uh, in before colonization. Wonderful question, and uh, thank you, Jaswinderji. It's a pleasure to speak with a fellow Punjabi. Um, now, what I'm doing there is I'm now isolating everybody else who isn't Punjabi just by saying that you're a fellow Punjabi and I'm a Punjabi, and we're proud of our Punjabiness. And there's nothing wrong in any group being proud of its identity and its ancestors. The problem arises when one group inflicts an injustice on another group, when a hierarchy is artificially created. Now, the Jati system was always recognized as not being hierarchical in terms of power, strength or anything else like that. We have so many scriptures which talk about the fact that feet are as much necessary for the human body to progress as in the brain, the mouth and everything else. In fact, I've come across a lovely scripture where the um, stomach convinces everybody that it's the most important because when it becomes constipated, even the brain can't think. So it's the, the notion is actually that jatis are merely ways in which we contribute towards the progress of the whole society. Whatever a jati does, so long as it's part of contributing to the well-being of the whole society, that's its purpose and that's its role. Now, that view is ideal and it's perfect. We should not have we should not have the lack of perception to recognize that those who wanted us to get rid of the jati system because they wanted to break it, they're the ones who created the ideology that some are better than others and they manipulated the social structure. For example, in Punjab, the Jat community had priority of access to land ownership and other communities were prevented. Now, that is the way in which you create a hierarchy and you impose it upon people and people adjust in order to survive. So jatis are the repository of the skills that a community needs to build itself into a profitable, in, sorry, into a prosperous and into a successful, harmonious community. Jatis are absolutely key. They are social capital and they exist throughout the world. In any community, you will find that there are skill sets which are hereditary and which are passed on from father to son, mother to daughter, father to daughter, etc. Jatis are absolutely accepted as that. We mustn't allow people to encourage us to throw the baby out with the bathwater. The bathwater, the dirty stuff, is actually the hierarchical ideology. We have to get rid of the hierarchical ideology. In our history, a there was only one hierarchy, and that was how close is a person to 
a realization that Atma and Paramatma are the same Tattva. That's how we measured the status of a person. We gave priority of an importance to people who had freed themselves of every other measure of hierarchy, whether it was power, whether it was money, whether it was wealth, whether it was land, whether it was army. They weren't the ones we gave primacy in our hierarchy. We gave hierarchical primacy to the person who had sacrificed and given up most. Now, that is a useful measure of what is higher and what is lower. So if we want to get back to the understanding that we had, we want to preserve pride in jatis, but get rid of a hierarchical concept which is not dharmic, which is not adhyatmic, which is not spiritual. That's the challenge in front of us, to preserve social capital, but to discard those pollutants which make social capital destructive of samaj. My question is from my lived experience here in the uh, U.S., uh, from the university campuses and uh, like I have seen almost all the university campuses they have a um, center for religion and where they have the courses on world religion and all sorts of things so there they introduce Hinduism and they start teaching Hinduism and like very quickly an hour or two they finish everything with the caste sati and untouchability and that's it so now everybody who is taking that class coming out with the perception about Hinduism, which embodies only two, three things that you talked about in this talk. So now if I go and talk about it, the perception or the true thing that we are uncovering right now, it's my word against the person of authority, the professor or the course or the university. So it's... It's a very difficult thing and it's not easy because we are not professional teachers who are <clears throat> talking things in a structured way. And very recently, we have seen this phenomena uh, like where a uh, U.S. professor, Audi Tuske, was challenged on some historical fact and everything spiraled into freedom of speech and bullying and all sorts of things. But it wasn't like that. Now... To correct the narrative on the caste basis, we have to challenge the whole ecosystem of how this wrong perception of Hinduism is propagated into the universities and the academic uh, environment. So how you can do that? It's like very mammoth and challenging task. Great question. Great question. It's very easy. It's not complicated, right? If somebody is talking about my family in my community, I challenge their right to talk about my community, about my family, right? And that's what we have to do. If we don't challenge their right to talk about us, we get stuck in their framework, right? Inka koi haq nahi hai. Bilkul nahi hai. Who are they to talk to us about our family issues? Right? I say this openly to many professors, right? They, 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 they want to talk to me about, is yoga separate to Hinduism? Right? And I say, well, why are you even interested? If it's not a problem for me, why is it a problem for you? Right? There are problems that you should be talking about. Let's talk about priests and predator priests. 
right? Let's talk about the endemic issues that you're struggling with. I would like to talk to you about those, right? But if you don't let me talk to you about those, I'm sorry. I don't even accept your authority. And so in your situation, you have to challenge the premise that a white person in today's world sitting in a country they occupied with violence, having massacred over a hundred million of the indigenous people in that country, of having done the first historically recorded attack using a biological agent. They infected blankets with smallpox and they're sitting there in that country and they're wanting to talk to me about my cultural history. And they can't answer that. And they can't answer it because they are establishing themselves on the basis of white supremacy, of a colonialist hierarchy, that they have the right to look at everybody and talk about everybody. They don't have that right. So I don't talk to them about Sati caste. I talk to them, why are you even talking about these issues? Let's talk about your history. Let's You talk about your history. I'll talk about my history. Now, can you see how strategically we change the framework? And this is something we have to learn to do. What we don't do enough of is consider the environmental framework in which a battle is to be conducted. We go straight into the subject, not looking around at who is this Maharati, right? What is their history? What is their prejudice? What is their background? We don't look at any of those things. They talked about to us about caste and we start saying, well, we've already lost. The answer to this and the African-American community have understood this. They will not let a white scholar talk about black history. Why do we? Okay, so Pandit Sharmaji, I'll uh, ask you the last question. And uh, this is out of some personal experiences and also, uh, you know, uh, the charges that get leveled back home here in India. So they, uh, not only the Manusmriti, they also pick up the uh, Ramayana and the Mahabharat to, you know, uh, throw these casteist uh, slurs at, her, at us. I'll give you an example. Uh, in the Valmiki Ramayana, uh, in Sarga 100 of the Ayodhya Kant, uh, when uh, Sri Ram and Bharat are having a samvad, uh, they, uh, you know, when he's explaining to uh, Bharat what a good king should, uh, you know, uh, characterize, uh, there is one portion where he says, Kachinna lokayatikan brahmanam tat sevase anarth kushala Ha ete bala pandit manena. It says, I hope you are not honoring the materialistic Brahmins, my darling brother. These men are skilled in perverting the mind, ignorant and thinking themselves to be learned. Sri, uh, Sri Ram cutting off the head of, uh, I think, Shambhu. Uh, there, there was a person who was uh, hanging upside down the tree in the Uttarakhand. And uh, he cut his head off because some Brahmins told him that he's trying to go, uh, you know, uh, become a Brahmin and we don't want a Shudra becoming a Brahmin. Firstly, excellent questions. And I think what you have done is opened an invitation 
to a conversation about those specific issues because the each and every one of them has certain dimensions which vary from one to the other but are great opportunities to learn from what was done why it was said and what it means for us today the first thing i'm going to say is that no other community and no other society has people today who are held responsible for the actions that happened 100,000 years ago or actually according to nilesh 12209 bce right the statement that you are somehow guilty that we are somehow responsible today for something that happened such a long time ago is a nonsense right it's like it is a trope if i give you an example it's like the jewish people being hounded because of an accusation 2000 years ago that the jews were responsible for killing christ and therefore today's jews should somehow pay the price it's a nonsense and yet when somebody points that same strategy at us we start going oh dear what do i do to answer that you know we take on the responsibility when really it's not our responsibility agar hua tha all right if it happened if the interpretation of it that's being presented is accurate somehow you're responsible it's a nonsense correct right we we have lots of people living in um sri lanka and let's say that was the mythological lanka they are not responsible for what the rakshasena did and so one get rid of the responsibility this should actually just be an academic exchange of theory principle and understanding between two people both of them happy to accept a deeper understanding if there is a deeper understanding all right if it's not that then it's not worth engaging in because what you're doing is you're engaging with somebody who is emotionally invested in their position and so progress isn't possible with that sort of an engagement you have to approach it differently now with regard to the individual past actions remember i'm going to share something very lightly to start people thinking because time is uh, a little bit uh, short now we've been talking for quite some time but remember that we had a an attitude which said that the atma moves from janam to janam learning and that the body is merely a mechanism for us to learn and to evolve in an adhyatmic sphere right now if that's the philosophy for which humanity exists then the rules by which you govern what human beings do and don't do they look at a much longer term picture they look at a, a very long frame of what will the knock on impacts of this be now if i use one of your examples karan was given the brahmaster but when it was discovered that he was not who he claimed to be that use of the brahmaster was completely compromised now that was nothing to do with jati it was nothing to do with caste what it was to do with was that the brahmaster should never be used in anger it should never be used emotionally and unless you had gotten to a stage where you had transcended your vulnerability you were not entrusted with a brahmaster and because he had used deceit 
he was deprived of its use. So often there are different understandings whereby an action is condemned or an action is supported. So that's just one example. And it was the impact of giving somebody who was emotionally so vulnerable because Gordon was a, he was a tragic figure, right? Gordon is um, often painted as being the, the sole figure in the Mahabharata and everything else revolves around him. But he's also a teaching to us that no matter how powerful you are, unless you have understood that you as a human being exist to serve the much larger system of Atma going through different bodies and becoming high, unless you have learned that, you don't have a right to higher knowledge. Now, if you apply those sorts of rules to each of those instances, then you can see a different value system under play. And so I'm just sharing that as a thought that today's understanding of equality and today's understanding of certainly the European understanding that everything is one lifetime, that in one lifetime we have to apply these one lifetime rules and values, they don't apply to these teachings. In addition to that, the Ramayan has an adhyatmic dimension. So the Ramayan is not just a katha for samaj, it's also hidden inside it is a sadhana. And in each shlok and in each gand, there is a, te a teaching for sadhaks. Each of us develops certain attributes, certain vulnerabilities, a bit of pride, um, the desire to secure something when we haven't already earned it. Each of those is a problem. Now, let me share with you, if we hadn't taught mathematics, the science of mathematics to the West, the West would never have been able to create an atom bomb. Hiroshima, Nagasaki wouldn't have happened. And so if somebody has a long-term view of human history and human journeys, you make decisions on a different basis. And those decisions are not confined to human suffering in the conventional manner. They look at a much, much larger picture. And remember, our rishis, their drishti, spanned yugas, not just years or individual lifetimes. So it's a conversation that I think we should have. We should definitely have. I would love to go through each of those and let's explore them. Let's unpack them and see whether there is something deeper as a lesson for all of us. But it's a very shallow understanding which takes colonialist tropes and then misinterprets, misidentifies, misapplies and creates a sense of guilt or a sense of... Um, injustice.